In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein. Today I'm joined by AJC transportation guru, David Wickert. David, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. You've had a little bit of a, a media torrent right right now with all the news about transit and, of course, the distracted driving law that takes effect on July 1st. Lots going on. This is my 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> or 30 minutes. We'll, we'll see. Um, we're going to talk about the new distracted driving law, but first let's talk about some, some other breaking news on your beat. Uh, earlier uh, this month, we had some significant news involving bus rapid transit in North Fulton County. Yeah, the uh, uh, back during the legislative session, the governor and lawmakers agreed to include $100 million in bonds uh, for transit construction. Uh, but didn't specify what that was until this last week when we learned all that money is going to go to uh, what they call transit uh, interchanges on Georgia 400. These will be uh, interchanges that will let these buses uh, go from the express lanes that will be built on Georgia 400. You and I call them toll lanes. Uh, But the buses will ride in those lanes, but then they will go, they will use these interchanges to go to transit stations and park and ride lots to pick people up. And put this in context for us. I mean, $100 million in state investment doesn't exactly sound revolutionary for mass transit, but it kind of is. It isn't in the sense that it doesn't go very far when you think about traditional mass transit, you know, the... uh, the Clifton Corridor line, uh, light rail line that Atlanta is uh, planning to build from Lindbergh Station to the Emory area, that's like a billion dollar plus project. And so you think of $100 million, well, okay, it's, I guess, about 10%. Uh, but, but it is a big deal in the sense that the state of Georgia traditionally hasn't spent much on public transportation. Uh, they do fund express bus service uh, in the metro Atlanta region. That's about $14.5 million a year. Um, million, yes. And, and then in 2015, uh, when they approved the big road and, tra- road and uh, bridge construction uh, bill, HB 170, that included $75 million, thanks, uh, for transit that was sort of scattered around the state. Again, it, it went for some MARTA bus, or excuse me, MARTA rail station improvements, you know, park and ride lot improvements. This is all $100 million uh, going to one thing. So that's a big deal. And the other thing is that uh, both uh, House Speaker David Ralston and uh, 
uh, Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle, who's a Republican candidate for governor, uh, more or less endorsed the idea that more funding may be on the way from the state. Yeah, and the difference is these, the, the, both these, the 2015 75 million bucks and then this year's 100 million bucks are, are both one-time bond investments. Whereas transit advocates, what they dream of one day is dedicated state funding, and yet it's still a significant historic sort of appropriation. And as the governor and Fulton County and MART officials all said, it's the first time the state has directly partnered with both those entities to, to do and one single project that every time drivers along 400 are driving down the road will say, hey, the state had a big involvement in this one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in terms of the, the, the money for operations, what I have consistently heard state lawmakers say, at least in the Republican Party, is the state's not interested in getting into the transit operations business. They would rather provide money for capital, you know, for construction, for buying buses, things like that. However, with the legislation that just passed in the General Assembly this year, uh, HB 930, they are creating a vehicle from which the state could become more involved in the transit operations business, this regional ATL authority. And that's why um, this plays into the governor's race as well. We have Stacey Abrams being a a vocal supporter of of transit projects, although she hasn't really outlined exactly how she would would use state funding. Casey Cagle has talked about going up, under, around, you know, finding different ways to get commuters from one place to another. He's even uh, had support in the past for a tunnel project that would go under the city of Atlanta. And Brian Kemp is much more skeptical about, about using state funds for mass transit. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it will be interesting to see uh, whose vision for transit prevails. I mean, the, the gov- elections have consequences, and the governor obviously plays a big role in making these kind of decisions. Nathan Deal certainly has. And overall, though, we, we have seen this, and we've said this before, but this is the latest example of what we've seen as a, I think, a dramatic sea change when it comes to Republican views of mass transit, where I asked uh, Sandy Springs Mayor Rusty Paul who is a former Republican, Georgia Republican chair, said 10 years ago, could you ever imagine Republican governor standing under the gold dome and and saying that they're going to invest directly $100 million in mass transit? Now, it's still not for trains. It's for commuter buses, which is a much more Republican-friendly way form of mass transit because it can be adapted much more easily than a, than a train line can. And he said, no, this is, this is it. And I said, well, what's accounting for that? Because this is Republicans facing up to reality that in order to, to drive economic growth uh, in the suburbs, companies like NCR, State Farm, Mercedes-Benz, when they're locating to, to Metro Atlanta, they're locating closer to transit stations. Yeah, I think that's a good perspective. I think it's also true that uh, Republicans in the suburbs are catching up with their constituents to some degree. The suburbs aren't as solidly Republican as they used to be. Think of Gwinnett County, which just went for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. Um uh, the changing demographics there are making the county more transit friendly. I don't think it's necessarily that a lot of transit skeptics in Gwinnett County have suddenly changed their minds, although I think that there probably are some who have. I think it's just there's a different population now in Gwinnett County. And that's why you will be very closely watching not only Gwinnett, but also Cobb over the next few months, years, to see how, whether they pave the way for some sort of transit expansion, including a sales tax increase. Yeah, uh, uh, Gwinnett, I think, is further along than Cobb. Uh, Certainly North Fulton, uh, as we've been talking about Georgia 400, uh, the the politicians there seem to be uh, moving toward mass transit. 
uh, Cobb County, not quite as further, not quite as far along, but they also are having discussions that could lead to a referendum possibly next year. Now let's go from mass transit to single car commuters. Georgia's new distracted driving law takes effect on July 1st. And uh, in most places in Georgia, there, there's going to be no grace period. Let's talk about how, how that law came into fruition first. I mean, this was not an easy legislative vote, was it? No, I think that there was, uh, I think there is often skepticism about changing traffic laws. Uh, think of the seatbelt law, which I believe initially passed in Georgia in 1996. Uh, it wasn't until 2012 that uh, it was in, uh, that the law changed to include pickup trucks. Um, uh, there was some resistance to the texting ban when it was passed in 2010. But what I think drove the t- the the uh, the texting ban in 2010 was were, were the deaths of of young people uh, uh, who were texting and driving, or were the victims of people who had been texting and driving. And that's the same dynamic you saw play out this year in the General Assembly. Families of victims came and provided emotional testimony that that kind of cut through all the technical conversations about, well, can I, you know, should we let people touch their phone if it's mounted on a dash? And if so, under what circumstances? Those discussions are important and they can be, but they can be very uh, bloodless. Uh, but when you have the victim, the mother of someone who died, staring you in the face and telling their story about what you know our bad behavior on the road is doing to, to real people, that made a difference for the lawmakers, I think. And to reinforce that point, the, the governor, when he signed the bill, chose a very uh, poignant place t- to finally ink this legislation into law. Yes, he, he chose uh, Georgia Southern uh, University or, 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 or uh, the airport near Georgia Southern where the, the nursing students uh, uh, died uh, on I-16 uh, in a crash that many believe was related to distracted driving. The, the truck driver who, who uh, collided with them had been on his phone, uh, did not admit that he was on it at the instant of the crash, but uh, nonetheless, that issue got a lot of attention because of the deaths of those nursing students, and the governor chose to sign the bill there with their families and with other families present, and uh, he himself got choked up as he's signing the bill. Yeah, as he's want, his want to do. Um, the one, one thing we should always know about Governor Deal is he does kind of wear his uh, emotions on his sleeve, and he'll choke up, especially at a very poignant moments like that. Well, let's talk about what's seared into your memory now, the do's and don'ts of this law. So what, what, what can you actually still do on your phone? Well, what you cannot do is hold it. You, you can still talk. You can even uh, dictate texts. Now, you, you, couldn't, you cannot use your thumbs currently under the law to, to text. You can't use your hands to text. But under the new law, you actually could send a text or a message uh, as long as you're doing it with hands-free technology. Uh, you can still use your GPS, but again, you can't hold it and you cannot uh, type in the address, uh, even if it's on a dash mount uh, you know, while you're driving. And in fact, I gave that information about that in an interview earlier this week because people's understanding of the bill is sort of still evolving even with a week to go. But uh, the definitive word now I'm getting from the state patrol and the governor's office of highway safety is you can use your GPS, but you have to use voice activation or just type in the address before you go. 
Or if your address changes, I guess you have to park and pull over under the law. Yes, you, there are some exceptions in which you can have the phone in your hand. Uh, one is, you know, if, if it's an emergency situation, you're reporting a, an accident or a crime, uh, or if you're lawfully parked, and lawfully parked does not mean stopped at a traffic light. That's in the, that's in the, the right-of-way of the street. It's, it's on the road that is not parked, even if you're stopped in traffic. Uh, nor are you parked if you're in stop-and-go traffic on the downtown connector. You have to be off the road in a place where it's legal to park. So bottom line is, in virtually every instance, you, you cannot touch your phone, physically touch your phone. But instead, you, you're allowed to use Bluetooth and headphones and things like that that are voice-activated to try to, to take these phone calls, right? That's right. And I will also say you can dial a phone number okay. with your fingers. If it's on a dash mount or something like that, that is specifically permissible under the law. It's pretty much the only thing you can do uh, while you're driving and, and touching the phone. Um, but uh, but yes, for the most part, you need some sort of hands-free technology, Bluetooth or you know an earpiece, you know something that that uh, that that lets you not touch the phone while and, you're using it. And something you told me, I, I recently bought two AirPod type things that I'm in love with already, but you said uh, that actually when I'm driving, I can only be using one of them at a time? That's right. You can have one of your ears has to be uh, clear so that you can actually hear horns honking, honking and, and things going on around you on the road. Um, and then, then there's, there are uh, things like you, you can use the earpiece for talking on your phone can't use it for listening to music. Huh. Um, you, you mentioned uh, there's a few exceptions, including for emergencies and, and, and natures like issues like that. But if I'm at a red light that's 15 minutes long, um, I cannot get on my phone. You, you're going to have to muster the self-control to not touch the phone. And you know what? That's going to be hard for a lot of us. Yeah, including this, this your speaker right here. Um, police are ripped and ready to, to enforce this law. And, and as we mentioned, there's, there's really, in, in much of the state, there's no grace period, right? Here's how officers, here, different agencies are, are explaining it. Um, there's no official grace period. However, the Georgia State Patrol is going to emphasize writing warning tickets for the first 90 days. That's basically through October 1st. Um, Gwinnett County is doing the same for 90 days. They're actually going to be handing out educational pamphlets. Cobb County is talking about a 30-day period where they're going to emphasize warnings. On the other hand, there are other places like Lawrenceville, the city of Atlanta. They're saying, no, we're going we're gonna to be uh, enforcing the law right from the beginning. And even in the places that have a what you might call a grace period, that doesn't mean they're not going to write tickets. What, what officers tell me is the thing that usually draws their attention to people on the phone anyway is when they've, they're having a hard time maintaining their lane, they're following too close, they're going far under the posted speed limit, some other behavior, which in and of itself is problematic. If they see that, there's a good chance you're going to get a ticket even by an agency that's having a so-called grace period. And you recently went out with, um, did a ride-along with some of these officers. What, what, was the, what was the standout observation you made? It was astounding. Uh, we hadn't been out. We, we just got on I-20 East heading downtown from the, from the State Patrol headquarters. Right to our left is a young woman scrolling on her phone. The, the, uh, the, the officer honked. She's not paying attention. She, he honks again. 
She looks up, sees it's an officer, puts down the phone, kind of waves. I'm sorry. We drive down not even a quarter of a mile. There's someone else texting with both thumbs. I mean, we drove around for less than an hour and saw probably a couple of dozen people who were either violating the current law clearly or were otherwise having the phone in their hand, which will become illegal you know, come July 1st. I have a feeling a lot of police departments around the state are about to get a lot more revenue from these new tickets. They say it's not about revenue. They say, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the fine for a first offense is 50 bucks, which is pretty small. The, the law actually uh, prohibits uh, additional fees like courts, court fees and so forth that often get tacked on to speeding tickets just for this offense. Um uh, the, the state patrol says if it were about revenue, we'd actually be getting some of the revenue, but they don't. It all goes to local courts. and uh, um, They say it's about saving lives. Of course, there are folks who don't believe that. They, they see it as a, you know, a, a, a ploy to generate revenue. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of police departments in the state. Who's to say that some of them won't take advantage of that opportunity? Sure. One last question for you. This one's I'm asking you to make a prediction. A lot of times lawmakers pass these this legislation. They have to come back a year or two later to sort of uh, narrow it down. We saw that with the fireworks law just recently as well. Um, what do you think is a, a gray area uh, when they drafted this legislation that they might have to revisit next year? Here's one that I think might be revisit, revisited in the next legislative session. Currently, under Georgia law, teenagers, well, anybody under 18 uh, who has a learner's permit, they're not allowed to use an electronic device at all when they're driving, period. Not hands-free, nothing. That actually is going to change on July 1st. They will be like everybody else. They will be able to use their devices hands-free. Now, that may cause some consternation among people because... Uh, teenage drivers are already having a hard time paying attention in a lot of cases. Um, and, but the, the bill sponsor, John Carson, a representative from Marietta, told me that the reason that they changed that is because uh, it, is, it is difficult to enforce sometimes. Uh, the law enforcement community has said, how are they supposed to know by looking at somebody whether they're 17 or 18? It's that sort of thing. So just making a universal law that applies to everybody, don't touch your phone, makes it easier to enforce. However, it is possible, he said, they may revisit that issue uh, in the next legislative session. Well, thanks for joining us, David. As you can hear, folks, he knows this issue back and forward. He's only written about a gazillion stories about this and all the mass transit changes coming to Georgia. You have a very, very interesting, busy beat. This is my 15 minutes, Greg. Thanks for joining us, David. Good to be here. And we're going to take a quick break. Now I'm joined by Bria Felician. She really is the brains behind this whole operation and the producer. And we're going to talk a little bit about the giant immigration news that hit us over the last week as well here in Georgia. Thanks for inviting me on. I am no James Salzer, but, you know, I'll, maybe I'll become a fan favorite. Exactly. Well, earlier this week, uh, we the audio of children crying after they were separated from their families along the U.S.-Mexican border in Texas started to hit the airwaves, and it quickly uh, became, uh, it went from a brewing crisis to a full-blown political crisis. Um, Donald Trump's policy, it was, he calls it a zero-tolerance policy for families who illegally crossed the border seeking asylum, uh, involved separating children from their families. 
There was all sorts of back and forth politically. He blamed Democrats for not coming to a comprehensive immigration overhaul. Um, Democrats and Republicans said this was his policy and his to reverse. Uh, Overall, it resulted in more than 2,000 migrant children being separated from their parents. And Trump, last week, reversed the policy on family separations with an executive order, but also called on both parties to once and for all hash out some sort of overhaul, overall immigration policy that includes his border wall on the Mexican border. Um, that has had a profound impact all over the nation. And of course, here in Georgia, where we have statewide elections coming up in November and a number of competitive U.S. congressional seats up for election. So it was, it was a big week of a lot of changes. I'm interested in, you know, early in the week before when we first got the audio, we first learning what was happening, how were Georgia politicians reacting or not reacting? Yeah, there's two different ways to look at this. In Congress, my AJC colleague Tamar Hallerman, who's our Washington correspondent, reported that at first Republicans uh, who elected Republicans in Congress kind of tried to keep a distance from this. They weren't sure exactly how to react at first. Um, and then eventually, uh, most Republicans said, we need to figure out some solution. There was different legislation. The House and Senate each had its own competing versions of legislation to once and for all fix, fix this. But in the background, there was a lot of intense lobbying of Trump to go ahead and sign this executive order take this off the table because Republicans are very worried about midterm elections and about Democrats leveraging this uh, to, to try to appeal to, to voters, especially moderate women who in many districts will hold the key to this election. In Georgia, you had the two gubernatorial candidates both take um, somewhat similar attacks. Uh, you had Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who's always sort of professed himself as a pro-Trump loyalist, um, say that kind of echo Trump's line that it's Democrats' fault and that there needs to be a comprehensive solution, um, but he blamed Democrats. Whereas Casey Cagle didn't invoke Trump's name in his statement, but overall said that there needs to also be a solution and called on Congress to get his act together. Stacey Abrams, the Democratic nominee for governor, jumped on it and said both parties, Republicans and Democrats, need to find a solution for them as, immediately. She also didn't explicitly uh, criticized Trump, but she said this is a cruel and immoral policy and um, that they need to uh, reverse it. And then here in Atlanta, I want to say it was the same day that he reversed the order. Um, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms signed an executive order prohibiting the city's jail from accepting new detainees from ICE. What was the reaction, the fallout from that? Yeah, this was a big deal for Mayor Bottoms. And she took office in January and, uh, you know, her election made national news. But since then, uh, there's been a string of headlines, uh, mostly negative, about the corruption scandal, the federal probe into, uh, into her predecessor, Kasim Reed. And she's tried to distance herself from Kasim Reed. So this is the first real giant moment where, where she uh, attracted a lot of attention um, for something other than, you know, other than directly uh, related to the corruption stuff in City Hall, where she said, um, she basically would not rule out canceling a federal contract for the city jail to hold people facing deportation. This has been an issue uh, that, that really um, bedeviled Kasim Reed. He was under a lot of pressure to cancel this contract. Um, she said she signed an executive order saying if Trump didn't reverse his policy immediately, that she would cancel that contract. Even after he reversed his policy, she still said it's still up in the air. She still might do so. The Republican candidates for governor 
jumped on this almost immediately with both Casey Cagle and Brian Kemp criticizing her in no uncertain terms um, for for this policy, saying that she had to abide by the rule of law. And this is really interesting uh, to, to folks who have watched the Capitol for a long time because Governor Deal really uh, made news in a way with his 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 tight embrace of Kasim Reed. I mean, for 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 decades there had been distance between whoever was in City Hall and whoever was the Georgia governor. Even though th- those buildings are only a few hundred feet uh, steps away from each other, there was a big political chasm between the two until Deal and Reed took office. And they, they had this sort of um, famous bipartisan friendship where, yes, they disagreed on more than they agreed upon, but when they agreed on issues like the like the, uh, the, the new Falcon Stadium, they really came together in an effective way. And and Deal has continued that way with Mayor Bottoms. He he helped her stave off a state takeover of, of Atlanta's crown jewel, Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. Now we have real clear and compelling evidence that that both Republicans would break from that convention, that they, they, they're both openly criticizing Mayor Bottoms in a way that Governor Deal has never and probably won't ever do. Um, and so this could be a really different... Uh, sort of alignment um, uh, next year if a Republican wins. It'll be really interesting to see how city-state relations play out because, again, um, uh, Deal had no comment on all this this last week, whereas both these Republican candidates are, are doing that. And, and Mayor, Mayor Bottoms had a very, very, very um, sharp answer to... Uh, she was asked at a press conference last week about Kemp's statement. Kemp's statement was this, public safety, not partisan politics, must always come first. Bottom's response, and I quote, I don't take advice from people who hold shotguns at children. So that is very, very harsh language in this, in this race. And again, a sign that, you know, the, the, the warm relations between the city and state, they might not turn sour under a Republican governor next year, but they will definitely be diminished, it seems. We have still a few weeks, feels like forever, until the Republican runoff. How much of this is going to influence the runoff and just the race in general. Yeah, right now in this runoff, we're, we have a very small uh, part of the Republican electorate who will vote on July 24th. Um, if we have double-digit turnout, that would probably be seen as, a, as, as, as somewhat high. Um, so you have a very, very conservative block of voters who will probably make up the brunt of the electorate. And so you have both candidates echoing a lot of Donald Trump's uh, immigration policy, Stacey Abrams is going to look to use turn that against them as much as she can in the general, because uh, the general is a much broader electorate, and there are people, even Republicans, who are somewhat queasy with the with the anti-immigration crack, uh, language, and um, so Brian Kemp's ad in the primary where he promises to round up, in his words, criminal illegals himself from his pickup truck, you know, can be example A one for for Stacey Abrams. Uh, if she's trying to, you know, make the argument that, that that the nation should be more inclusive of immigrants, and Brian Kemp or Casey Cagle are going to hit right back at her, saying that this the nation needs tougher borders, and that they're pledged to send National Guard troops to to Texas and New Mexico to to help protect the border is is much needed at a time where uh, you know people are still crossing the border illegally. This sounds like it's going to be an issue through. November. Yeah, I have a feeling uh, we're not hearing the end of this. That's why you should keep on listening and reading 
and tuning in to the Politically Georgia podcast. And that's all for this week's edition. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please rate us. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.